21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. I'm, I'm sitting here with Tim Jones, who I met uh, last weekend, actually. Yeah, hi. Um, so, Tim, I wanted to have him on the show. He's got an interesting story. Um, we're going to dig into that story today, and we're going to dig into kind of the, the guiding principles that have uh, led him on the path that he's on, which is uh, soccer coaching. Yes, yeah. yeah, correct. So we're going to jump right into the, the story now, but uh, Tim, why don't you say a little bit about um, who you are, your current job, okay? and uh, and then I'll ask you a few more questions to dig deeper into that, so go ahead. Sure, yeah, uh, not long come to Saudi Arabia to coach for Arsenal Soccer Schools uh, here at a private university. Um, I'm a UEFA B licensed coach, FA Youth Award, um, very briefly an FA tutor back home. Uh, so I've, let's let's talk about acronyms because people might not know oh, the acronyms. Sure. So start again and, and, and without yeah, acronyms no so they can. Uh, so UEFA is uh, European Football Association. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the B license is the level three. Okay. Um, and then the FA Youth Award is what the FA have put the youth modules, youth module one, two, and three, and then you're assessed at the end of that. They're actually now embedded within the level three, the new level three that the FA does. That's just the old version of that. Right. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get that done before they merged them. Uh, which was the other, what was the other one? That um, said there? You threw one more out there. Um, the FA Tutor. So just yeah. for the Football Association in, in England. Okay. Um, but as I say, I'm not no longer with them at the moment. Hopefully, do that again in future. Yeah. And and I just want to jump in before we continue. And despite the fact that you are working for Arsenal Soccer Schools as a coach, mm-hmm. as one of the lead coaches here, um, you know. I just want to let everybody know that the views you're expressing today, I've asked you to express your personal views. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so they're not necessarily those of the Arsenal Soccer Club. So it's just kind of your learning, your personal learning journey, and the guiding principles that have, have led you based on your own unique journey. So I just wanted sure. to, to say that. So Thank anyway, say, say a little more about... Um, what you're doing sure yeah uh well come come over here from south wales that's where i've been most most recently for for five years uh fortunate enough to go to the university of south wales to take a a football coaching bachelor's degree there uh and then following that an internship with them and i'm currently on a a distance learning masters uh, in advanced football performance coaching it's the first year it's run Uh, so anyone that's out there looking for that kind of studies definitely look it up um so again really fortunate to be on that uh, but that also afforded me the opportunity to perhaps uh, search for things that I could do uh, outside of uh, the UK, which included this, uh, and yeah. it was a fantastic opportunity. Um, we are more here in perhaps the participation uh, space rather than performance, although we do have some some children who are uh, excellent footballers here. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was at Bristol Rovers uh, with their academy, uh, most recently with that under 12. So... I've moved from a more kind of elite space uh, more recently into the participation space. Um, and, the, and you said before, so if I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I'm just no, trying to like almost hi, um, 
emphasize or, or draw attention to the big points. So right now you talked about uh, participation versus performance. Sure. As well, if we just um, backtrack a little bit, um, the commitment that you've shown, you know, with uh, continued studies, um, developing this, obviously, this passion that you have for coaching. But I just want to back up even more now. And were you always really uh, a committed learner? Like if you look back to yourself as a kid and a teenager, were you always really committed to things? If it interested me? Yes. <laughs> if uh, if I, I, I've always been the kind of person who, if, if I can't see the point of it, then I'll really struggle. Um, so I mean, the, the, so the, were you were you really good in some subjects in school and not so good in other subjects, or were you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I could uh, would would be quite average uh, at, uh, at most things, and then those things that really interested me, then you know, I, I tended to to excel. So it uh, came naturally for you to um, really invest time and energy in the things that you loved. Always. That's that's come come with time as well, though. Yeah. Um, so b- before uh, this particular career, uh, I was a musician. Um, although I always played football and I was, co- uh, you know, helping with coaching since I was twelve, really, um, through through my older brother and through the youth club that I was at, I was helping out younger kids. So coaching and certainly teaching through my my family, my entire family of teachers, okay. uh, has always been part of part of my uh, growing up. Um, did your parents get on your back about not committing yourself in all areas of school, or did they just kind of give you the freedom to? To pursue what you love pursuing and my, invest uh, the time where you felt it was necessary to invest. My my mother was uh, the the musician, uh, incredible musician. Uh, she she taught me piano and she taught a, a lot of people piano, um, and uh, she would get on my back a lot more about kind of practicing and stuff. And uh, even at uh, kind of sixteen, seventeen, uh, viola was my main instrument, and and I did really even at that stage kind of fall out of love with with performing. Um, certainly on your why own. Do, anyway. Why do you think so? Isolation, really. Right. I preferred playing with other people, uh, being involved with other people, and uh, certainly that links in with with coaching and certainly and coaching work. a team sport. Yeah, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, your original question of whether learning has always been something I've been committed to uh, for the right things, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And certainly at the moment, I'm very much enjoying being part part of the uh, master's course, and it's opening up my world too. Uh, yeah. So your first degree was in music? Music with computer sound design, yeah, from University of Surrey. Yeah, yeah. and as you, we were talking about in the pre-show, that you just kind of gravitated uh, uh, towards um, coaching. Yes. Uh, so talk about the pull factors that led you away from music into more of a full-time capacity as a coach. Sure, Uh as I mentioned, you know, football's always been an incredibly important part of my, my life as a sport. Uh, I attribute a lot of that to my older brother, um, but also football does run in my family. My uh, great uncle was a, a professional, um, and then my, my grandfather, both on my wife's side, were both football, big footballers. Um, what is it about the game in particular that really has, has fascinated you? football? Or, yeah. Uh, over other sports, you mean? Yeah. Uh, I think it's the fluid nature of the game. You know, and certainly when I'm coaching with with kids, it's it's the fact that they can come up with uh, solutions that you could never even think of yourself. So long as you provide that environment for them to be creative enough to do that, and and that's fascinating to make so, their own decisions. To make their own decisions, absolutely. But to come up with their own solutions, and right. and that's that's what I perhaps find the most fascinating mm-hmm. is that you know you, you go into the same session, or you think it's going to be the same session, same practice design. 
it won't look anything like what you expect it to. Yeah. Um, so uh, certainly part of the, the the art of coaching for me is is that flexibility to be able to adapt to that. Yeah. Um, what what did you have to let go of to move from a more of a performance based model to a participatory model? What did you have to let go of within yourself to be able to embrace this new role? Um, I was very fortunate to be head of coaching for a charity in, in London called Football Beyond Borders. Um, did that for nearly a year and within that role I was able to develop a, a curriculum and a set of principles for work with mixed ability children, um, young people I should say. Uh, and within that, that, that was challenging me to think back to the times that I have worked in the mixed ability space. Um, I've certainly done that a lot in the past. I worked for a company in the US for a couple of years that was more within that participation, uh, some performance. Um, when you say mixed ability, is that the participatory model or the performance model? Uh, both? With mixed ability, it tends to be the participation. Okay, yeah. It tends to be just because of the nature the of that. If it's levels. a performance model, then it, chances are those uh, are in there through some form of trial process. So the uh, assumption is that the ability will be closer together. Yeah, um, and more of an yeah, more of an elite correct level, meaning that the basic competencies have been achieved, and and they're therefore they're they're high flyers. For the most part, yes. Um, so I guess the challenge or the different challenge for uh, coaches who are working in in uh, more of a mixed ability space is is how to uh, differentiate. Exactly. And that's certainly something that within the teaching world is 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 quite rife at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's been around for, for decades, but um, certainly I, I have the opportunity all the time to speak to my older brother who, who works with uh, um, some some challenging situations where you know he has some some high flying ability kids, some that are lower, and how do we solve that problem of um, being able to challenge them appropriately? Uh, yeah, and that's that's the big. It has been around for a long time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all coaches and teachers embrace because different embrace it because differentiation is extremely hard and it's messy and it requires great timing. It sits an investment of time and energy uh, in your planning, and it's so easy just to you know use this one blanket approach, right? Mm-hmm. So it is a big investment. So uh, in this mixed ability participatory model um how do you bring the ends like you know the opposite ends of the spectrum how do you what's your philosophy with trying to get them uh mixing and involved sure um from a personal point of view i i really like working within the social space uh something the four four corner model from the fa you know the social corner is 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 one specific let's say that again the four 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 corner model from the fa so technical tactical or technical uh, tactical technical tactical is one yeah okay social yeah psychological and physical okay Uh, so those would be the four corners um I think, yeah, I, I like to work within the social and psychological space, and I sometimes have to remind myself to, to remember the other two. Um, but uh, You gravitate towards I, it. I do gravitate towards it, definitely. Um, in terms of working with higher to lower ability within the same group, it's how well do you know that child? Exactly. If you know that child really well, then you'll have a really good chance of challenging them effectively across those four. Um, what... I guess typically coaches find is that the higher ability loses focus, loses concentration, uh, motivation because it's too easy for them. 
the lower ability may lose exactly those same things, but for a very different reason, which is they're not able to participate as much. They're not mm -hmm. getting as many touches on the ball. Um, so it's just being aware of uh, all of those things as best you can. Mm -hmm. uh, with the limited time that you have available with those children. Do you differentiate the, the number of touches in the ball with players when, once you get to know them? Um, you may challenge them in different ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, although I tend to try and avoid the, the, the old adage of two touch, uh, for, for certainly wouldn't do that with a group anymore. Uh, but with individuals, you know, you might challenge them in certain ways. Um, it's quite fairly famous that Guardiola, Pep Guardiola uh, challenges his players with one or three, one or three touches. Wow. Um, nothing in between. Or nothing in between, nothing afterwards. But I mean, that's just a constraint. So it might be that it's, you know, used for a small amount of time, a larger amount of time. That depends again on, on the child, on the young person. Um, so if we took a, a higher ability kid, it, I might challenge them more within that social and psychological space within this participation model that we're in anyway. Yeah. Um, it might be that they're able to instruct their peers over some of that technical and tactical knowledge that they have. Which, which is based in research, right? That, that mm -hmm. peer instruction is a very powerful tool for empowering young learners to know their worth and, right. and to develop confidence and uh, just that idea of the, the, the peer, peer influence, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, uh, it's very easy for, or it's easiest, I suppose, for coaches to manipulate the task constraints. Um, and it's those that I like playing with to try and eke out different things depending so on the individual. speak more about, um, you said, um, modifying the task constraints? Yes. So speak more about that. Sure. Uh, so Newell's model of the constraint, constraints-led approach, you've got task, uh, individual, or environment. So the individual one will be more down to uh, their physical capabilities, uh, but also their psychological capabilities. Um, so very much within the, the sort of interest space. Uh, after that, the, the task constraints that I've already spoken about, and then the environment, and that um, initially was down to just your physical environment. Mm -hmm. But a lot of research has covered kind of them, well, actually, what does the social um, the cultural environment, mm -hmm. how does that change? Uh, so I've been reading a fair bit of, at the moment about uh, the theories around habitus and kind of how how does your social upbringing, how does your current culture change, how you act and how you develop. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly the kids that you're working with, you need to be aware of how does the culture you're promoting and then their peers as well, that's going to affect their development. Are you able to manipulate that, perhaps? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we were speaking before about how you can have your own principles, you can have your own coaching philosophy, but in the end, it depends because of who you're working with, the culture you're working with, uh, what is their previous knowledge. Yeah. So and all I, of those things. Come and I think play. that's the idea of the very um, inexperienced teacher, or and this is based on my own uh, experience, but the inexperienced teacher, inexperienced coach is an activity task searcher. You know, they're constantly on the outlook for the, for the next, next best uh, activity to run. And what I try to do in my work with physical education, uh, with physical education teachers is you can't blindly copy an assessment. You can't blindly just copy an activity 
because that's another person's teaching space. And I always say everybody, every teacher has the potential to be a master of their own space. They really are masters of their own space because they're the ones who know their students, their space, their resources, climate, like all of these things, right? So to blindly copy doesn't work. Whereas a more experienced coach will will glean insight from here and over there and then apply it and tweak it to the demands of, of their their job, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a, a really good uh, member of the FA, Ben Bartlett, uh, who whenever he brings something out, I immediately try and listen to it or read it. And he talks about uh, kind of bridging the gap between hope and happening. So what do, you, what do you hope is happening within your coaching practices and what is actually happening? Um, that requires data collection, doesn't it? Uh, I think he was talking more, more around reflection, uh, but okay. he also talks about data collection. So it might yeah. be you know, ball roll time. It might be the length of time of your interventions. But that depends on what is your philosophy, what is the philosophy of the, the club you're working for. And again, those things we spoke about in terms of culture and of, of the, the children that you're working with. Um, speaking about, you know... The, Kind of copying activities uh, just had a, a reflection there of uh, one of my first posts was working with a, an adult female team and uh, being a very inexperienced coach at that time I would just make notes at the game and then I would try and cover all of those things at the next training session so it'd be mm-hmm. 10 minutes of 1v1 defending 10 minutes of finishing 10 minutes and it was uh, although uh, sometimes that was enjoyable uh, it wasn't very effective mm-hmm. um, certainly not within that space in any case uh, and, so and- you learned your way through that. Of course. Um, you, know, you learn more through coach education programs, mm-hmm. through reading, um, and, and certainly through my own reflections of, well, this is nuts. I'm, I'm asking them to do several things and then try and process all of that as they drive home. Uh, yeah. It's just too much to take on. Yeah, when you talk about, you know, you, you've already spoken quite a bit about reflecting and every great teacher and great coach, you know, they embrace the art of, of critical self-reflection. Some people do it differently. I, I very much journal all the time. Um, but what does reflection look like to you? Is it more of a cerebral thing or is it actually like pen and paper? Like, um, I'll, I'll refer back to when, you know, when I was back in the UK. Um, what I would do is, is record on a, on a voice memo on my phone whilst I was driving home. It's about an hour between Bristol and my home in Wales. Um, so that was just good time. To, to spend and just kind of dump all of those thoughts out onto uh, onto a space where I could listen back to that. Uh, I then just refer back to that, listen to it, make some notes, um, and I'd usually try and pick out three things um, that have that I can take That's away from. That's the more experienced coach that you are now. <laughs> sure. Pick out three things, right, rather than try to cover everything, like you said. Oh, I see. Um, like when when you listen to your reflections now, I mean, you just seem to have hit upon something very important is that you said before that you you would take notes and then you would try to address everything in the game so your notes were obviously a reflection back then but now in in listening to your reflections or like you said when driving in the car to maybe pick out the the biggest points to to move forward on or yeah but they've also refined a lot over time, we're talking, you know, a, spa- a space between sort of seven years there of yeah. coaching experience. And those earlier reflections, as I said, with the, the female team back home in Jersey, uh, it was all technical, all tactical. Mm. So I'm just concentrating on, you know, what does the game look like? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some individual stuff, but again, within the technical, tactical corner. Um, whereas now, you know, it would be, 
usually what I'm looking for out of those three things is maybe something uh, around an individual or a group of individuals, a unit, uh, something around the, the practice design, and then something around myself mm -hmm. as a coach in that space. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's been you know, largely a good process and occasionally a very painful process. Yeah, for sure. Give an example. Sure. Um, <laughs> not not too long ago, uh, you know, I was being uh, an informal assessment uh, in situ. I delivered a, a practice uh, based on a card game that I was very excited about. Um, spent a lot of time kind of figuring out how that would work. Mm -hmm. uh, it fell flat almost immediately. Uh, managed to adapt one or two there things go, yeah. to be able to get it to run okay but had to call it quite quite what, short. What was it that failed? Uh, it was far too complex. Okay. Um, in my mind, it made sense. Yeah. In practice, it didn't work. Yeah. And that's not to say that the, the players that I had wouldn't have coped with it, not at all. If I'd given them more time, um, perhaps they would have done. But in the sort of small time that we had available, it, it simply wasn't going to work. So... Uh, Yeah, I was really quite angry with myself after that one, mm. for sure. Uh, going home uh, and recording. On, uh, if I listen back to that one, I can hear that anger in, in my voice. What were you most angry about? Uh, I guess that uh, the lack of foresight mm -hmm. of knowing that it was going to be too complex. Um, but also, I think from a very uh, personal point of view, uh, that was my ego yeah. in the way. Because yeah. I knew I was going to be watched, uh, yeah. I wanted to do something different. Yeah. Uh, exciting, creative, uh, and that had more to do with me than it did the players, and that that was a revert to um, kind of the older me, I yeah. suppose, that more inexperienced coach that you're speaking about, yeah. uh, and was a, a divorce from what I would normally do. Right. So, so why do it? It was simply my own ego in place, yeah. and, and certainly that reflection on the way back was was one of the more painful ones. Yeah. Um, is there a connection, obviously, with, with music? You, you were very creative. Mm -hmm. Music is a very creative endeavor. Um, is there that element of um, creativity, I guess, as a musician, being very creative and, and expressive in a creative way? Mm -hmm. How did that impact you? Did you pull any principles from that over to your coaching? Sure. I think just the, the, the playfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, If I think back to when you know when I was a musician, I, I, I preferred those times when I was composing, and kind of that time would disappear because you're you're, you're in it, you're in you're that in kind of flow. flow. Yeah. Um, for for then the coaching space, that creativity, that playfulness, uh, it's whenever I'm designing something, if it can have that, there was one or two things, but as I mentioned before, you know, simple enough that it, it can be grasped quickly. Um, yeah, that's that's really uh, interesting to me. Um, but equally, when other coaches put on something, I can remember from a few years back, I was a first-year student, uh, Mark Neville, who's now with the FA, he, he put on a practice that was just in a circle uh, rather than a, a square or a rectangle. And the reason behind that, I mean, I'd seen circular practices before, but the reason behind it was more, it would create more 1v1s. There's nowhere to go and hide in a corner. Right, yeah, yeah. And it was one of those, where, well, of course, you know, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But uh, how wonderfully creative that is. So it's those kind of things that definitely excite me. For yeah, sure. I've actually never. That's the first time I've heard of that. That the circular, the circular game. Yeah. So staying out of corners, right? Well, it it, cre it creates more one v one. So if you're working on uh, perhaps creativity in one v one attacking, um, 
obviously you can work on the opposite and 1v1 defending, it will create more of those returns. So that's the point of the, the constraints that you're putting in, those task constraints that mm -hmm. we spoke about. For a group, it's about am I creating more opportunities for realistic and relevant repetition for the returns that I'm looking for, the learning objectives. Yes, yes. and I told you last week that I'm, I've got the uh, good fortune of working with um, Carl Morris, who's uh, one of Europe's top uh, peak performance coaches for the European Golf Tour. Yeah. Um, he, it has been a very rewarding experience working with him, but he's, he's very much all about, um, you know, I'll use the golf analogy here, <coughs> mindlessly banging out balls in the golf range. Right, in hopes of improving your game when it's an absolute waste of time. Mm. Because mindlessly banging out balls with no purpose has no relevance, uh, nor does it reflect the actual demands that you face on the course, let alone in competition. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea of practicing um, with an, an intention and placing all your attention on that singular point of focus but in particular, the applying pressure, putting pressure on yourself in practice to be able to, uh, I guess, replicate uh, more quality golf shots, you know. Sure. And then there's your me you're measuring your performance in practice against that principle. Mm -hmm. So if you don't put pressure on yourself in practice and you're not recording data and, and really being aware on whether or not you're improving you know, with this pressure placed on you, um, that it's, it's pointless, you know? So that's been my big takeaway with him that has changed the way I practice in golf and, and it's really working, but that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And I think, uh, I, you know, many people have spoken about this before and I, th I think through coach education programs, uh, certainly in the UK, a lot of this is, is now not, not present in, in coaching practice, but the idea of, you know, dribbling around cones or you don't get cones, in a, in a football match, yes. you know, uh, you get defenders who move and react. Um, so, is it actually worthwhile? And there's, it, it becomes quite a reductionist argument very quickly mm. um, because you could never quite argue that isolated practice doesn't have its place. Of course, it does. Mm. Um, from but, a technical uh, point of view, right? From a from a technical point yeah. of view, yeah. Um, but if you're <coughs> removing the perception from the action, then how worthwhile is it? Um, the, the idea around perception action coupling, I think the, the, the most famous paper around that was uh, cricket bowlers. And it was a case of they, they recorded data on um, batters, sorry, and they had human bowlers and then the same deliveries coming through from a machine. Mm -hmm. And the batters were nowhere near as good when the machine was popping out there, the, was bowling at them. Um, because they're, they're reading more with... Exactly, they're yeah. taking in more information yeah, yeah, through yeah. through the, the human bowlers, the, the move of the hand, mm. uh, the run-up, all of those things. Um, so that's just a really clear example of if you remove the, the perception, then the action will be changed um, or won't be as relevant to the real thing. Mm. So certainly within my practices here, because we're, we're limited in terms of the time that, that we're with the kids, um, it is more of a games-based approach. There's less of that kind of isolated practices. Um, we might encourage the children to do that on their, on their own as kind of like a homework task. 
Um, but within our practices, it's certainly my feeling that that's a, a waste of time. And when you say uh, more like a homework task, now we're talking motivation. Sure. Because, again, this is something that, that I'm really trying to promote in, in the physical education space is, is this concept of action. Kids taking action on being physically active outside of PE time, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's a whole different beast, you know, because it's that idea that if, if they're motivated, then, then they will, they will do that. So how can educators and coaches create the conditions that motivate uh, young people to, to want to take action on their learning? Well, some, something that's um, uh, lovely with the, the curriculum that we deliver here is that uh, it's all linked to Arsenal players, legends, and there's that natural role modeling there. So uh, with with uh, my young people that I'm working with, it's not just asking them to go away and do those tasks, but actually can they go away and watch? You know, YouTube, what a resource that is. You know, to go and watch Kanu. I mean, none of them know who Kanu is because uh, they're too young, mm-hmm. uh, with minor exceptions. One or two did. Um, yeah. But go and watch them. Go and see how, how did he play come back to me and talk to me about what was he like as a player? How did he solve problems? And so being able to visualize that will be an important part of then the learning of the, the young people. They might try and implement some of those. That's things. a way to connect with them as well. Of course. Yeah, when they come back and they've invested the time, then then you're going to invest the time in the dialogue. That's it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, we talked last weekend. Okay, so you t- already talked about hope and happening and the gap between the two. Sure. Which to me, I... I talked about it being knowing and doing right mm-hmm. and then you you said you call it hope and happening but um it is necessary i mean good educators and coaches work on closing that gap right so speak more to that hope and happening and some strategies that you put into practice to evaluate the size of the gap between hope and happening and then uh, create interventions that allow that gap to slowly decrease over time. Sure. Uh, I think the easiest one to speak from, from an individual point of view, and, and I think it might have been the example that Ben Bartlett gave as well, um, was around bull roll time. So one of the England DNA, England FA DNA, uh, parts of their principles is, is 70, 75% bull roll time in a session. So the kids are active with a football during that time. 70 to 75% of the time. Right. So, I mean, a really easy way of working out whether you're doing that is simply to have two watches or video the session um, and and time it and see whether that's true or not. So uh, if part of your philosophy is to have that amount of time, is that actually happening? Uh, from uh, a really personal point of view, the, the uh, one of the things that I looked at was my intervention times. When I uh, began and then as I got uh, more competent with the coaching process and coaching interventions. Um, unbeknownst to me, I was then doing more of it. Uh, I guess to practice it because I felt more competent at it. But as a, as a result of that, I'm actually in for longer um, rather than the kids playing or the kids solving the problems. So uh, that was pointed out to me and uh, I was suggested that I wear two watches um, and then just time as I went in. And... Um, I've now done this with, with other coaches that I've worked so with. So two watches. So you're doing the, the, the running practice time. Yes. And then on the other watch, your whole group 
when, whenever whenever I stop the practice. Yeah, and bring everybody together. Sure. So I, 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 let me let me just stop there because please. this is such a valuable strategy as a teacher, and this is something that I that I bring uh, when I have consulted with schools in the past, and I work with PE teachers or you know classroom teachers, whoever it is, mostly single subject teachers. So music, art, PE, and. Um, it's so critically important to be aware, aware of teacher talk time. And there's a, a great book called Ego is the Enemy, written by Ryan Holiday. And um, he talks specifically about our own egos getting in the way. And this is where teacher talk time and coach talk time can really be impacted. You know, when the teacher or the coach wants to be front center, uh, they can take up a lot of time talking. And they're, they are, I have had so many teachers shocked by the amount of talk time. And one of the first things I'll ask is in a 45 minute lesson, okay, so what do you think your teacher talk time was today? And they'll say, oh, you know, 20, 30% of the time I've had as high as 75%. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So again, and I've seen you in practice as well, and it is the kids are all active and then you call them in at, at various times to have quick discussions that are quick. And I've seen this, you know, so speak more about that um, awareness. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that came from uh, the coach education programs that I've been on. Certainly the youth modules were really useful of that. And my first year at, on my bachelor's degree, uh, that's when it sort of became more apparent to me um, and like I said I think it really came about because of my growing competency to coach or to go in and coach things um, you then have to scale that back of course first time I did it you know I would have definitely have said uh, you know around 20-30% like your teachers have done and was horrified Yeah, you know, absolutely horrified at the, at the actual time that came in even though I had the watches on so I was more aware of it yeah. For sure. So it probably would have been even worse if someone else had, had been doing the, the counting rather than me. Um, so then it was just through reflection, uh, through talking with other other coaches, more knowledgeable coaches than myself, uh, and then video of, yeah. of my sessions uh, that I found very valuable to yeah. go back and, um, again, a painful process, for yeah, sure, for sure. Um, but, but really useful. Do you look at the questions that you ask when you watch videos? Yeah. Uh, so... so Striving to create more open-ended questions. Yeah, questioning became probably the most important thing to look and at. And response time. Mm -hmm. Do you do you look at response time? Uh, within looking at the the length of the intervention itself, yes. Yeah. Um, so certainly, my questioning style now is is much more open, but with the idea that I'll have something else in place to scaffold if I need to. Yeah. Uh, so that I can bring things back round. You know. um, but if they equally if. The young people go off task, but they're still talking about football, still talking about yeah. that practice. I'm fine with that. Well, this is this is interesting because I was um, collecting data um, on a teacher recently, um, and the teacher is really uh, thoughtful about the way they plan their lessons. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very interesting because during the the lesson itself, the teacher gave a task. And I was simply measuring whether or not the students were on the task that he, he or she, I don't want to say one or the other, yeah. he or she had assigned. Sure. Right? So at any given moment out of a class of uh, 18 to 20 students, roughly six to eight kids were off task. Mm 
Okay. Okay. That's the only thing that I was I was I was looking for in regards to on task or off task. At the end of the lesson, I asked the teacher, "How do you think that lesson went?" And they said, "Oh no, I, I have to change things up. You know, this isn't working. Six or eight kids were were not um, on task." And then I said, "Okay, interesting. You're right. They weren't on task. Um, however, did you listen to the conversations that they were having?" And the teacher said, "No." And I said, "I did." And they were genuinely curious about what their peers were doing. They were genuine, genuinely curious. And they were listening to, to, it was a music class, they're listening to one another, one another play music. The task was to, pre, you know, choose one instrument and then read sheet music and practice for 15 minutes. But yet they were very curious and they were asking their, their peers and listening to their peers play. So to me, that was, that's engagement. And when, when I brought that up, it, it was like a light bulb went off with the teacher. And I said, so maybe your success criteria for a good lesson needs to shift a little bit. So just wanted to mention that because it totally supports what you're saying with if kids are talking about football or talking about the task, mm. that they are engaged. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, 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 I guess it's more, more flexible than in terms of your, your learning objectives. But uh, if they are learning off their peers, if social learning is taking place, then it's doing its job. And... Um, as long as it doesn't take too long then because as I've mentioned before we want that ball roll time um, but I do also want to give them enough time to, to go through that cognitive process so um, it's, a, it's a balance and it's a fine balance and, and, and to, to get it all right in a, in a session is rare yeah. definitely rare but uh, through that reflective process yeah um, we also talked last weekend about communication right so the idea that as educators and coaches, we always strive to develop better communicators. <laughs> sure. Uh, but at, it's often done at a very superficial level mm-hmm. um, where what it means to be a good communicator is not unpacked, right? And, and not really broken down to smaller achievable chunks uh, where they're actually developing the skill of being or the skills of being a better communicator. So speak to your philosophy and some of the guiding principles and approaches and strategies that you use and be very explicit in, in how you address this in, in player development. Sure. Um, very recently, uh, a group who regularly argue, shout at each other, call each other names uh, and distract each other through sessions uh, I just used a very simple constraint it's not my own I've nicked it from someone else because um, it's effective uh, was just to start giving free kicks start giving penalties even uh, when they argue lash out and so on uh, what happened is a bit of chaos to begin with obviously as they try to work out what it is that I'm doing once they've worked it out though uh, it was so really interesting so you don't explain it no I didn't okay, explain good, it good, good, good. and it was really interesting uh, within about three, four minutes, it was practically silent football. Uh, the standard of the football was better, um, but you would perhaps say that no, no verbal communication was going on, not non-verbal communication was happening. Uh, but they were more concerned about, you know, don't give a free kick away. So at the half time, I, I had them in, and I, it was a really interesting moment where we had a, disc- a quick discussion. I just thought, how come you were silent? Well, we can't argue with each other. Isn't it a bit of a shame that that's all you have to say to each other? Uh, and there were you know a few bowed heads and um, it was it was a really valuable moment 
So I guess then with that group now, you know, I can push that forward and start to give them strategies for uh, more appropriate verbal communication, more appropriate non-verbal communication. But I had an interesting thought uh, watching a match recently of the the pros, they can't hear each other in a, in a stadium full of you know, 60,000 fans. 40 metres apart. Right. Yeah. So uh, is it that valuable to be teaching the verbal communication, which certainly seems to be what most people uh, do more of, over the non-verbal stuff? So uh, I, I tend to try and focus more on is it an open body stance are you showing where you want the ball are you making eye contact and those are the things that are definitely stress open a little body bit more. stance meaning that they're obviously receptive sure i mean it, uh, within uh, kind of football rhetoric we would speak about being on the half turn yeah so if, you, if you're in the possession phase you're in the attacking phase and you're a player that could receive the ball are you open to the field uh, so that you could take a touch into and, and attack immediately. Yes. Uh, if you're closed, then uh, you might be doing that for a reason. It might be that you've got pressure, but if you're closed, then you, the options to you are more limited. Um, so it's things like that that I would spend more time on now. Which is explicit teaching, though, right? Of, of course. And this is, again, um, going back to good teaching you know the inquiry based model of teaching um, teaching and learning has really taken off over the past you know decade and there is a misconception that uh, good inquiry teachers give blanket free choice to students that it's about students just really taking a topic and just running with it in any way that they want um, but good inquiry teachers know when to step in and um, use direct instruction you know, so there is a fine balance, and we we call it this idea of sage on the stage versus guide on the side. You know, yes. and that a good teacher can transition between being sage on the stage stage because it's necessary at times to being the guide guide on the side when the conditions are right. Speak more about coaching from that point of view of the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side and finding that rhythm and flow. Sure. Uh... I guess it, for, for me it would be that within starting a practice, I try as, as much as possible to, to have the uh, children describe it to them to each other. Um, but you mentioned uh, you know inquiry-based stuff. They have to have a level of prior knowledge that's going to allow them to do that. Otherwise, I'm just going to watch them sink, yeah. um, which obviously we don't want to do. So, But more of my explicit coaching happens on an individual basis. Um, Timely uh, feedback. So, so what we would call a drive-by, you know, maybe bringing out an individual, having that conversation with them, and then they're back in the in the flow. Yeah, of the yeah game. we call that timely feedback. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the uh, I forget which coach educator it was I watched from the FA, but he he termed it a, a forest fire, and it's something I use all the time now. I thought it was brilliant, um, where I'm dragging an individual out, having that conversation with them, and then if it's relevant to the group, saying find the right times to tell the group. Then. And it's interesting then watching that individual, you know, when, do, when do, I, do I try and get them in now whilst they're playing or do I tell maybe the keeper who can tell the left back who can, um, and it, you know, that's another version of kind of then that social learning. Obviously Chinese whispers happens yeah. a little bit uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> through that, but um, uh, you can manage that within, you know, a group, a group discussion afterwards. Uh, but I try as much as possible to do more of my explicit stuff uh, on an individual basis. That seems to... Uh, seems to be easier for me in my preference of coaching rather than stepping in. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that comes with experience as well because 
again, it's it's very differentiated and it depends on the individual, right? So your explicit teaching of one skill oftentimes won't apply across the board. Sure. So I think that's that idea of timely feedback. And this is where evidence shows that real learning takes place when, as you said, a, what do you call it, a drive-by, a drive-in? A, dr- a drive-by. A dri- yeah. drive-by. <laughs> um, real learning takes place in those moments. And this is based on research that, you know, this, this whole idea in education is this idea of um, a summative assessment task at the end of a unit and then a couple of formative pieces during the unit building towards this summative um, assessment at the end. But the reality is that the, the summative is not what's most important. It's the process of learning throughout the way. And this idea of timely feedback is so critically important to their development because it's it's ongoing, you know, and it's this idea of self and peer assessment, you know, at the end of a unit, kids will self and peer assess themselves, but then there's no time to adjust to the feedback that they've, they've gotten. And traditionally, that's the way education has been. They, they, there's a lot of self and peer assessment, but no time given to actually adjust learning. So that's what you're talking about with the drive by. You're providing time as well for them to adjust to the feedback that you've given. Yeah, it's the. It, it, usually, I will position it as a as a question. So it might be, you know, how could you position your body uh, more effectively to, to be able to play forwards? Um, it might not be those words exactly, depending on the age of the the young person I'm working with. But it it, it also I'm also mindful of um, it's it's nonlinear. So it might be that I've given that feedback to that young young person before, and they've done it before, and it just so happens that. Today they've they've forgotten or something else is going on for them in their lives or they've had a you know bad day in school and, you know they, they're just muddled up a little bit. So the question might be as simple as well, what would you normally do in that situation? Uh, so you can just kind of remind them of that and help them to uh, assimilate that information. Um, so there's there's loads of different strategies that you can use within that kind of individual moment. Right, right. Um, yeah, so many parallels to, to good teaching, and that's another reason why, why I wanted to get you on the, the podcast, right? Thank you. Um, so in projecting forward, um, you know, obviously you're, you're enjoying the work you're doing right now, but in projecting forward, what are some hopes that you have for your career? Uh, sure. Uh, always find this question difficult. Um, I'm asked a lot. I think I, I have natural competencies for working with coaches, and I, I definitely uh, perhaps don't have that opportunity as much out here at the moment. Um, so in time, I definitely want to be working with coaches in either a mental capacity or a coach education capacity. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to work on a, a couple of uh, the FA coaching uh, education programs, and I loved every second. So I'd definitely like to get back involved in that in, in time. But what, what I'm enjoying most about being out here is the opportunity to develop a quality program. Um, and to be coaching more often um, certainly back home uh, although I had four roles I was coaching maybe three times a week whereas here I get to coach six times a week so I'm learning again uh, it's nice to be back in that space um, and that'll only serve me well in, in future yeah for sure um, I had moved from from teaching so I stopped teaching uh, three years ago and I had uh, prior to that the you know, several years prior to that, I had been kind of consulting and running workshops. And then I took the leap to go and consult. 
uh, and I had a great year doing that, but then the, the position came up here at the school, which is a uh, pedagogical coordinator, which is essentially a cognitive coach. So our role is uh, cognitive coaching. So I work coaching teachers and very much as you described, like w- wanting to coach coaches, right? It's a very interesting model, the cognitive coaching model, because it's all about asking questions and tapping into the existing internal resources that teachers already possess you know when they get stuck then it becomes more of a consultative role Um, and there's a collaborative um, role as well within that framework but it's a very rewarding uh, you know rewarding position yeah and I I, it's it's part of the 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 cycle there I think it's it what I loved most about working with the, the, the charity and then working with the, the FA was the opportunity to kind of consolidate my learning as well yeah. through that teaching. Yeah. Um, and just like with putting the sessions on with the, the young people, when you're working with adults who are coaches, they're going to throw questions out to you that you would never have thought of. So yeah. to be able to perhaps flexibly deal with those, but also have those moments where you can be really humble and say, actually, I'm, I'm not sure. Let's discuss that a bit further. Um, which is the power of vulnerability because it's like the, the like I return back to the greatest coaches and and uh, teachers are the ones who who make themselves vulnerable because they know that um, they're going to learn in the process and it's okay to say you know I don't have the answer to that let's figure this out together a very powerful thing to, to model to teachers or for, for teachers to model to students rather than putting on this mask like you know everything and that as a teacher I have to know everything and that's one of the biggest things I learned in my teaching career I very much masked and a lot of um, research shows that a lot of teachers do mask and it's this idea that you you don't want people to perceive you as 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 not knowing you know certain things because then it questions your competency right but there is that idea of making yourself vulnerable and, and saying, you know, I don't know that. We're going to figure this out together. Great question. You know, let me come back to you on that. I need to learn more. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. Very powerful thing. So we're going to transition over to the speed round. Okay. Okay. I didn't yeah. tell you about the speed round. No. <laughs> so I end every podcast off with a speed round. I'll ask four questions. Yeah. You answer them as, uh, as succinctly as you can, giving no extra information. Um, okay. And then at the end, you'll think about one of the questions that resonated the most with you and offer one last piece of advice or insight that you have related to that, okay? Okay, no problem. <laughs> okay. So speed round begins now. Question number one, the, the best book you've ever read outside of soccer that impacts the work that you do in, as a coach? Uh, that would be Legacy by James Kerr. Uh, it's about the All Blacks rugby team uh, and uh, it it goes through a number of principles fantastic okay excellent Um, the greatest lesson your parents ever taught you find authenticity love it Uh, number three complete this sentence my biggest fear is Uh, not knowing where I'm going like Geographically or uh, in no, life? No, in life. Not <laughs> okay. geographic. Although I am particularly poor at that. <laughs> Those that know me will know I'm directionally challenged. <laughs> and um, if this is a this is a tough one, so you, you can take some time. Okay, silence, thank you. silence is is fine because it's thinking time. So um, if somebody was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what title would the book be? 
Yeah, directionally challenged. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll go with that. Okay. So now we're going to revisit the four questions. So the, the best book you've read, the greatest lesson your parents ever taught you, your biggest fear, mm. and um, the title of the book. So now speak to which one resonated the most with you and just one last piece of advice or insight. Sure. Uh, uh, that would be the one about my parents. Uh, the, the That lesson wasn't taught explicitly that was something that i've learned through perhaps a little bit of rebellion um but also through you know just observation and reflection on on their lives um that feeling of authenticity is the reason i coach and it's the reason behind you know everything that i do so uh, if there are those moments where i feel that kind of uh, angst uh, of this doesn't quite feel right then that's something that I've uh, learned to, to, to listen to and, and to deal with and I think it's really important and I mean in the coaching world um, there are times when I was more inexperienced that I was trying to kind of emulate others mm-hmm. and as you've mentioned before yeah, it simply doesn't work uh, you've got to find that space where it's it's you yeah yeah that's really good advice and um, I describe my process of finding authenticity um i i describe it as a nudge you know and it was kind of like i i always felt this nudge in the work that i was doing and it's just like a little nudge and and it, it really bothered me for many years because i didn't know what the answer was and i i still i think i'm much more uh, i guess much more on the right path with what i was meant to do but it is that idea of finding authenticity is, is really, it's a nudge. And, it, and you keep getting nudged along. So you have a choice to ignore it, disregard it, or, or be curious and to seek more information and to, and to ask yourself important questions. So I think you've already demonstrated a commitment to that um, that I'm sure will we'll continue. So thanks Thank for you. being on the show. No, not at all. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, are you a social media guy? Yes. Are you on Twitter? Extent. I am, yeah. Okay. At, What's your, can we say your... Yeah, that's fine. Okay. It's at Coach Tim Jones. Okay. At Coach Tim Jones. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, sure. And uh, people can connect with you there. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, ask any questions. So Yeah, I'd love to hear. Okay, great. Um, everybody, thank you for listening to my episode with Tim Jones. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.